You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is a person with a very colorful past in the intelligence world, Milt Bearden. He spent some 30 years with CIA. He was a station chief in Pakistan, Nigeria, Sudan, and Germany. In fact, he was in Pakistan from 86 to 89, which was the end of the Soviet occupation, and Milt actually played a role in training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and later was chief of the Soviet East European Division at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of the Cold War. Interestingly, since retirement, he has done quite a bit of writing and collaboration in, on films uh, in, in Hollywood, most notably with Robert De Niro on uh, Meet the Parents and, of course, The Good Shepherd. Uh, his book, The Main Enemy, uh, was critical of certain aspects of the government's, the administration's approach to what was going on in the Middle East. And so there are many things that we can talk to Milt about. So first of all, Milt, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, glad to be here, Peter. Just uh, delighted. You know what I'd like to kick off with? We've just experienced an extraordinary uh, change in, in the uh, picture in this country of who will be in the White House and what the political coloration would be. If you had an opportunity to sit down with President-elect Obama, what would come to your mind very high up on your list as what you'd like to talk to him about if you were given the opportunity? I think I'd have to kick off with the challenge in Afghanistan. It's, it's uh, quite possibly the war that will ultimately bring us more grief uh, of the two wars that, uh, that we have engaged in out there. And I would probably suggest to him to zero base his thinking, uh, certainly to shelve everything that he used in the uh, on the campaign uh, in making pronunciations and pronouncements on Afghanistan and Pakistan, take a deep breath and call in some people who might give him some versions of reality that he hasn't heard yet or doesn't want yet to hear. Uh, he can end up if misplayed with an Afghanistan that is a quagmire that will uh, bring nothing but, but grief and will be uh, the graveyard of yet another empire. Uh, 
there has been some talk uh, that we've seen, not from uh, Obama himself, but about the possibility of, of actually conducting talks with the Taliban. Well, uh, if they don't decide to talk to the Taliban, I think that uh, we'll find that we have neither the manpower nor the, the gold to continue to fight. You got to remember that every superpower of a given era has somehow been drawn to Afghanistan. Alexander the Great rolled in there 327 BC and had his worst campaign of all. The Mughal emperors, all of them went through back and forth and finally gave up on trying to do anything with the Pashtuns, whether it was collecting taxes or, or bringing them to heel. They did have some success in hiring huge numbers of Pashtuns to wander over into uh, India and uh, fight uh, the Hindus. They had no trouble there, but never had any luck bringing them to bear or, or to heel. The British had three wars, uh, lost two of them and let one fade away. Uh, the Soviet Union marched in on Christmas Eve 1979 and thought they'd finish this thing up. Everybody before them got in easily and nobody ever got out easily. Ten years later, a million Afghans, maybe more, had died. A million and a half had been wounded. Three million had been driven into exile into Pakistan and two million into exile in Iran. That's one of, out of every three Afghans uh, either killed, wounded, or driven into exile. Uh, and the Soviets finally gave it up. After the deaths of Brezhnev, Andropov, Chebrikov, uh, or Chernyenka, and, and uh, then Mikhail Gorbachev came along. He had not been a, a Politburo member at the time the order to go into Afghanistan was signed. So he was the first guy that could have said, let's try to get out of here. They left in nine months after we agreed with them in Geneva. Uh, their commandant of the Soviet contingent, uh, Boris Gromov, marched out of Afghanistan on the 15th of February, 1989. By May of that year, the Hungarians had figured that the Soviets had spent it and decided to cut the barbed wire on their border with Austria. All through that uh, spring, developments in Poland led to an election in June where Lech Wałęsa, the, the electrician from Gdańsk, was elected and communism was effectively voted out of Poland all summer long. The East Germans began a few hundred, a few thousand demonstrations every Monday around the churches. Then by November 9th, 1989, you had that strange series of events where the Berlin Wall opened up and everybody moved from east to west. 329 days later, Germany, east and west, were reunited inside NATO. And uh, on April Fool's Day, a year later, the Warsaw Pact slipped beneath the waves, and uh, I think it made page four in the style section of the Washington Post. The Soviet Empire was done, and it was done in 
in the Hindu Kush and in Nangarhar and Bhaktiya and Helmand and places like that. And was the CIA, the covert support to the Mujahideen, of which you were a part, the critical element in driving the Soviets out of Afghanistan? Well, I, it was an element. Uh, indeed, it was an element. Uh, when Bill Casey sent me out to Pakistan to take the war over, the, the Mujahideen were fatalistically waiting to be martyred. We had always uh, been very covert about the whole operation, giving them only Warsaw Pact weaponry. And both he and uh, President Reagan at that point said, you know, what we're doing is we're fighting to the last Afghan here. And how moral is that? Besides, Bill Casey felt with a lot of other things going on in the world, he might be able to ramp this thing up a notch. And so he said, we're going to send in American stingers because the Soviet uh, uh, helicopter fleets, the attack helicopters, had pretty much defeated uh, the Mujahedi. Not defeated them, but stabilized the situation. We did that in August of uh, 1986 when I arrived. We deployed the first uh, Stinger hunter-killer teams, and it never turned around after that. Uh, we, we saw that the Stinger shot through uh, a force of couple hundred thousand full and part-time fighters and they believed that if they had a stinger anywhere near them they could pick up their recoilless rifles and their RPGs and and their their Kalashnikovs and their uh, light and heavy machine guns and go off and, and cause great torment for the Soviets and it never turned around after that so we finally made it so costly for the Soviets both in in terms of, uh, of gold and uh, and some blood that uh, Gorbachev decided to to quit the field. And uh, the rest is sort of history. I think uh, there's always a reluctance on the part of subsequent administrations in this town, in Washington, to give any credit to a previous in administration. So nobody uh, liked after the, the end of the the Reagan third term, which was Bush, H.W. Bush, to suggest that Reagan had anything to do with the end of the Cold War. They always liked to say, well, no, there was contradictions and, and historical forces and flows and ebbs and all this nonsense. And uh, they, they got completely bogged down in a horrible war and they lost their empire. End of story. You know, it's interesting you used, uh, we're talking here to statecraft and the movement of empires. I used a word, you touched on a word, the morality of something. And, you know, that is one of the elements that has come out in, in the, the so-called war on terrorism, and that is the morality of how we treat um, some of these folks that we've taken prisoner that, that uh, we believe were, in some cases, intimately involved in actions against Americans and trying to kill Americans, or even in 9-11. And that's something that... Uh, I think has been a difficult issue for Americans to deal with. It's been a difficult issue for intelligence professionals to deal with. What, is, what would be your comments as, as someone who was so intimately involved with that struggle? Uh, well, what we're referring to is, is our treatment of uh, detainees yes. in, in yes. any of our wars, uh, yes. either in, in Iraq 
or Afghanistan. Or Guantanamo. Or Guantanamo, yeah. or yeah. anything that flows from the from 9-11, sure. of our wars that flow from 9-11. Uh, like a lot of people in my generation, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution when I was in mili the military, in the United States Air Force, for four years. And then when I went with CIA, I took another oath uh, to uphold that same Constitution. And I think I took that seriously. And I see what we have done in the last eight years uh, to our position internationally through the so-called taking off of the gloves. And uh, I don't have any, any uh, unstated opinions on that. I think we have done ourselves more harm and more damage uh, for little or no gain, uh, probably absolutely no gain. People uh, like Alan Dershowitz have gone off and said, but you got the ticking bomb syndrome, and I say, or the, the scenario, the ticking bomb scenario. I say, leave that to Hollywood. Don't codify that, because in the in, in, in enforcement or intelligence or in the interrogation world that has, has sprouted up after this endeavor, everybody will say everything is a ticking bomb. And so everybody gets waterboarded, and everybody will be a gold mine, and everybody will be a high-value target. And we end up looking like a lot like an empire that we spent most of our lives uh, trying to bring down. The other thing is, I would submit that we've never gotten anything, zero, nada, nothing, from uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. You'd say, well, they, they never hit us again after 9-11, so they must have been doing something right. Well, that's, that's possible. They never hit us again after 9-11, probably because they never had another shot at it. Uh, I would submit that this administration had it developed any actionable intelligence and pulled off any great heroics to protect Americans would have spent less than three seconds getting that leaked out there. It is inconceivable that that wouldn't have been out there. So that dog didn't bark. And uh, I just don't believe it. And uh, I would offer that challenge to anybody to put one, one story up there. If they say we have to protect sources and methods, I would point out that the protection of sources and methods is the last refuge of the scoundrel. If there are 300 people that were involved in it, buy them all F-100s and condos in Phoenix and get on with it. <laughs> okay. Milt, let me take you back up to the, to the big picture again. Let me take you back to talking to the President. If you were able to speak, and here I don't mean so much the President, perhaps the National Security Advisor or, or his, uh, the people advising him. Look at the intelligence community today, particularly, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the changed status of the CIA within that community, as you and I knew it, formation of the Director of National Intelligence and that enhanced role and where it seems to be going. What is your take on that? Well, it's a very difficult thing to create a community and then to tweak it like we have. Most of the adjustments made to the American intelligence community after 9-11 were under duress of some form or another. Uh, all kinds of public and private pressures to create a DNI, for example. Uh, that would be the thing that would solve this. So there would never again be misconnections. The DNI would get it all. And uh, then we wouldn't have uh, 
a chance for a 9-11 to happen again. And that was pressure brought by people inside government, outside government, uh, survivors of families who uh, of, of victims of 9-11 were involved in that too. So I think that the DNI concept was created just to uh, take care of a, a certain amount of criticism. And I'm not sure what it does. I know that it's created another layer on top of a layer. And it's created a number of people who were jettisoned, perhaps, or otherwise made their way from other entities in the community to DNI. And I, I'm, I'm not hearing anything. I don't spend a lot of time trying to listen, but I'm not hearing anything that suggests this has been a very good idea up until this point. Now, so now what? So what does he do about it? I think uh, CIA has gone through so many transformations as, as the American culture has changed. When you and I went into CIA, low four decades plus ago, plus plus, America was a different place. Uh, you had a class of, of X numbers of guys that came out of the one arm of the military or another, and we were all pretty ready to do pretty much anything. And for a lot of us, um, right out of the chute after training, it was off to Southeast Asia uh, and a failed enterprise there. But there was a pretty much an understanding that that's kind of what you did. You went places where you had to drink water that was boiled and uh, um, maybe have to strain it through your sleeve every so often and, and just get on with life. The, the, today, it's, it's more like a business contract, I think. And maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't uh, fit in the same pattern of a national collection service that, that uh, we were part of. Now, what do you do about it? Maybe you find if you need some really tricky things done again, you leave everything in place. I would, I'd get rid of the DNI, by the way. But you leave everything in place and let it sort of do what it does and then go over and create something to do the the daring do part quietly start over it's it's almost impossible to uh, to make any sclerotic organization adjust I think if you thought you had new challenges you should just build something new you know we <clears throat> spent a certain amount of time talking to with you wearing your chief of station hat or you wearing your agency hat, let me take you into another world, a fun world, the entertainment world, the one where you're thriving now and, and, and you've done very well, by the way. Um, give us an impression. So many of us have a, a, a perception of that world uh, of LA and Hollywood and screenwriters and, and uh, our perception, of course, is of their gross misperception that they see people in intelligence or even in the East or in government as, as, uh, as sort of uh, either, either mired, uh, mired in the uh, bureaucracy bureaucrats or, or intelligence officers who are either incompetent or cowboys. Are those perceptions you've dealt with in, in, you know, in your work and dealing with other screenwriters, with other people working on films? God, I've been fortunate enough to deal with 
some of the most brilliant screenwriters, uh, Eric Roth, uh, who brought you Forrest Gump, The Insider, Munich, and did The Good Shepherd, which we could talk about, uh, controversial. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, who is not without controversy himself, but uh, the guy who did West Wing, but he did Charlie Wilson's War. And Mike Nichols, the director uh, of Charlie Wilson's War, and then Bob De Niro, who directed uh, The Good Shepherd. Uh, uh, John Frankenheimer uh, did Ronan, and Jay Roach did uh, Meet the Parents, all of which I had something to do with. Uh, I find my experience has been different from what you suggest, that I never, never found them to be completely expecting me to be some sort of a bumbling cowboy or a caricature of a bureaucrat or a spy. And once we got through the first handshake and introduction and started talking about their scripts and talking about the world and talking about uh, things they wanted to know that I might know, I found them to be very, very much interested in trying to get it right uh, uh, on, on some things. So I've never run into that kind of thing. I think that people in the entertainment world have hidden angsts that they think maybe they're the sum of their parts, and their parts are all just what somebody else wrote. And so they, they find that somebody who actually did wander around the world doing this kind of stuff, uh, maybe they better pay attention to that. And of all the people, De Niro, who watch how you sit and watch how you hold your arms. And then he and I wandered around in Moscow, and he and I and Marie Catherine wandered off into Pakistan and, and into the Konar Valley of Afghanistan together. And uh, so my experience with these these A-list people has been terrific. And you know, I uh, I went over to Hollywood to meet with Mike Nichols. I was going to go for two days and just talk to him about the Charlie Wilson script and the the movie. And we did our two days in L.A. And then he said at the end of that, he said, "I want you to stay for the well, the sixty the ninety day shoot." And you get on with uh, Universal and do the horrible thing you have to do with them and make it happen. And the next thing we do, we wander off to Morocco and spend uh, a month shooting out there and then back to the desert in L.A. I uh, was with him the whole time. And uh, the same with De Niro. Well, we were off to to uh, Dominican Republic. You can't go shoot in, in Africa and make something look like Congo Leopoldville. You have to go build Congo Leopoldville in, in a place like uh, 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 the DR. You have to take a Spanish, all the Spanish language signs down, move everybody off on a two-day pass, and bring in Haitians, and you turn the place into Congo Leo. Uh, these are hard-working people. What is it, 80% of the industry is unemployed at any given time? So yes. you see people working very, very hard. And I saw nothing but no-nonsense professionals. My experience has been that they had respect for uh, the point of view of reality. I suppose they wouldn't suffer any fool that came along, but neither you or I are fools. Well, I think one of the most interesting things, too, about your career, Milt, is that 
although you, you turned uh, uh, towards the entertainment world in some ways. You produced your, your novel, The Black Tulip, which was well received. You participated in movie making, but you've also continued to write. You've continued to speak out as a former intelligence officer, as someone who was engaged in, the, in our country's uh, engagements abroad. And I, I think that's both to your credit, and, and I would ask you now if you, uh, if there's anything you'd like to say here at the, at the end of our conversation that's on your mind about, about the way the country is going right now and about what's going on in the world. Goodness, it can only happen in America, I think, that you can just put a screeching halt to something. This election whether or not you're going to feel good about it in a year or two years was a huge statement that put an end to something that has lasted for the last eight years that fundamentally changed who we were as a nation, what we were as a people, and it stopped it dead in its tracks. I don't know any other nation that's been able to do that without, without some outside military force doing it for them. I, I mean, I, one would have to flash back in history, but that was a huge, huge event, which makes me think that it is so big that certainly it cannot be squandered, and that every step that the new administration led by this very bright guy takes will have to be thought through. And perhaps he needs to get some fresh faces uh, and smart, fresh faces in his foreign affairs team, uh, rather than going back to, to something that might be a little old, a little stale. Uh, you know, with the, 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 the state of the world economy, which is almost spooky, uh, an Afghan war that can only be described as unwinnable militarily, and uh, a, a war in Iraq that uh, was in no way accurately described in the debate during the campaign, uh, which is still a very fragile situation. I think he's got his hands full. I wish him well, uh, but he's got to be thoughtful and get the best people he can. Uh, and, yeah. Milt, it's been an absolute delight having you here today. I think uh, after 30 years in the agency and another, I don't know, whatever it is, 10 working in the entertainment world, you still look like a fresh face and you have a fresh mind. So it's wonderful having you here today. Thank you, Peter. And, uh, you know, we go back a few years, too, and I'm, I'm just delighted to be here with you, and I hope uh, that uh, people will enjoy listening to some of these uh, thoughts of a couple of old spies. <laughs> okay, good luck to you, Milt. Thank you. Good luck to you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.